All right, good morning. Welcome to another week of our being scattered together. So, so appreciate you taking the time to gather with us in these online ways today. We are so hopeful uh, in the coming weeks and months that we will begin to be able to move towards uh, getting back in person, gathering all together. But for the meantime, thanks for gathering this way today. We are going to do uh, what we do each week, uh, which I pray is, is encouraging and life-giving for you. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you there, a Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it to the passage we're looking at today from Matthew chapter 5, now beginning at verse 27. Matthew chapter 5, continuing in this series, Kingdom Come through Matthew's Gospel. Looking today, Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says this, look with me. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But what I say to you is that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That is God's word. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll dive into this. Spirit of God, open our eyes. Illumine the preaching of your word. Use this passage today from your word to speak powerfully to accomplish the purpose for which you are sending it out today. God, bring freedom, break chains by your spirit's power. We ask you to accomplish that. And God, as I always ask now, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Uh, everybody runs. Everybody runs. That, that was the uh, opening kind of tagline for Steven Spielberg's 2003 futuristic action-adventure film, Minority Report. I don't know my, how, how many of you saw that film, Minority Report. Uh, it's one of the only films that I can ever remember seeing that dealt with the concept of something like thought crime. Thought crime, this film dealt with something I never remember seeing in any other film that I've seen before. So this film set in 2054, so 30 plus years from now, but I guess we should expect this to come. Uh, set in 2054, the government has developed what they call a pre-crime policing unit where these clairvoyant humans known as precogs, they're attached to a computer and they can pre-visualize crimes of extreme emotion and violence before the offending suspect even begins the fatal deed. So th these individuals, uh, these would-be murderers are arrested, they're, they're imprisoned in a benevolent virtual reality state, and as a result, almost all premeditated first-degree murder is eradicated. Seems like a great thing. Uh, but, but I mentioned that film not to help populate your Netflix must-watch lists uh, moving ahead, but, but for two far more important reasons as it relates to uh, everything that Jesus uh, is bringing up in this teaching from his Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at this morning. First of all, because what that film, what the idea of that film shows us is that we already have a concept in our mind of what Jesus says in verse 28 about moral culpability for destructive desires of the heart that we have not yet physically carried out. 
We've already got a concept of that in our minds. And secondly, because even with that understanding, almost everybody still runs from Jesus' teaching here. I think we run in part because we don't understand the goodness of what Jesus is showing us. We don't understand the, the freedom that Jesus intends for his kingdom citizens through it. But I think uh, another reason we also run is because, probably with good reason, every single one of us is also just terrified at the thought of anyone having access into the secret, dark thoughts of our hearts that we seek to, that we seek to keep so well hidden from everyone else. We, we, we're terrified of the idea that someone would, would see even those things which we don't want anyone else to see. Well, I'll do my best to at least deal with the first reason we run from Jesus' teaching here as we dig into this passage, and I hope to show you, yeah, absolutely, the, the, the goodness of it. But as for the second reason we run, yeah, uh, unfortunately, embracing the Holy Spirit's access into every part of our lives, including the secret thoughts of our hearts and minds, embracing that is a good thing, is it, just something we come to learn over time. Uh, as we mature in our faith, and that there's no, sadly, there's no shortcut in that process. It takes time to, to develop and see that as, as the good thing that it truly is. But in order to help us get to here, the, the goodness and the freedom part that Jesus absolutely intends for us here in this fuller, uh, and as he reveals the fuller intent behind the seventh commandment of the law and the prophets, all of which Jesus said he had come, you remember, to fulfill on our behalf, I want to highlight three key things that Jesus points to in this passage. I want to show you the goodness of the command, the fullness of the command, and then we'll close our time this morning by looking at radically pursuing the freedom of the command. Okay, so the goodness, the fullness of the command, and then radically pursuing the goodness of the command. Uh, last week, we looked at the destructive power of anger in our lives. If you've closed your Bibles, your Bible app, would you open them again with me to our passage now here, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 27. Follow along with me as Jesus does some much-needed heart surgery for us as it relates to the equally destructive power of lust. Okay, so let's look first of all at the goodness of the command. The goodness of of the command. So if you look first of all at verse 27 with me, you see Jesus begins this section of teaching with that that formula that he uses in each of the six examples that he draws from the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Namely, you have heard that it was said. Okay, he starts this next section with the exact same kind of formulaic beginning. And in our passage today, the foundation Jesus builds this next section of his teaching on is what was said in the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That was the seventh commandment in the Ten Commandments. Now, now we'll see as we dig in deeper this morning that there was also a little bit of overlap, actually, between this commandment in particular and also the Tenth Commandment, which had to do with coveting and where the, the instruction was that you should not covet another man's wife. But, but even in the ever-increasing strangeness of this cultural moment that we're all living in today, as it relates to attitudes towards sexuality, uh, uh, absolute truth, any of these kind of things, I think, generally speaking, the vast majority of people today would still agree that in the same way that the commandment not to murder people is good, it's also good for us not to have sex with someone else's spouse. I think the majority of people would be like, no, no, that sounds right, yeah, I'm... I'm down for that. That sounds good. 
But what I want to explore together for just a moment before we move on to Jesus' expanded, fuller teaching of that commandment is, is why this commandment is so good and why it is that God would give this commandment to his people Israel to begin with. And I think in order to answer either of those questions, we need to be able to first answer the question, well, what is, what is sex? Like, like, what is the meaning or the purpose of sex? Because there's a variety of different answers that people would give to that question today. But I think when we understand God's answer to the question, then we will see why, why the command is good and why God would give it. And the first thing we learn about sex from the creation story found in the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, is that, first of all, we see sex is something that God designed himself. That sex was part of God's good design for his creation, okay? Sex was not something that Satan kind of just like slipped into the punch at one point and then God came along one day and was like, hey, 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 no, no, God, what, what are you, no, right? The, the, God's plan, like the, the, the opening story of human beings on the earth is God putting a man and a woman in a perfect garden, completely naked, completely unashamed before each other, and then telling them to have as much sex as possible, make as many children as possible. That, that's God's plan. That's the opening story of, of God's design for sexuality. Secondly, what we also learn is that beyond just procreation, God's design for sex was that being naked and unashamed with each other was not only to be a physical reality, but also to be a spiritual and emotional reality as well, so that the act of sex would be this whole self-giving from one person to another. And finally, and maybe most importantly as it relates to what we're looking at today in this commandment, God's design for sex is that it was to be enjoyed within marriage alone, within the safety of covenant commitment to one another alone, both to bring profound intimacy and connection between a husband and wife, but also to guard and protect the sanctity, the, the importance of that gift of self that you are offering to another person, it was to help protect that for both of you. And I think when you understand all that, it helps you then to clearly see the goodness of the command as well as why God would put it in place. I think, I think hopefully that helps clear up any misunderstanding there. That, that is, this command has nothing to do with trying to repress and encumber sexuality and everything to do with honoring, honoring the profound gift of self. When you give your whole self to another person, just honoring the, the, the profound value of that gift, as well as protecting that gift from attack, from abuse, or from, from theft. And I think that's where the overlap of the Tenth Commandment, not to covet, comes in. That, that the idea of adultery also carries with it the idea of theft, taking something that is not yours. And I know, I, I know that there are all kinds of voices today who would just say that that's all nonsense. Uh, that, that sex is nothing more than a basic animal drive like hunger, which I know you hear those voices today, but the reality is that's, that's not a new idea at all. It was around in Jesus' day. It was around long before Jesus' day. We hear so many voices saying, you know what, sex is just, it's just an animal drive like hunger. So in the same way, eat when you're hungry, you have sex when you're horny. And, and, and you're not giving anything away when you satisfy either of those desires. The reality is, is that, particularly when it comes to sex, it just, it just never works out that way in the end, though. It just never works out that way afterwards. And if you've ever experienced the devastating 
reality of adultery in your own life, or even unfaithfulness in, in maybe a dating relationship, or just watched adultery smash through someone else's marriage and family like a freight train, you already know firsthand sex is, is far more than just an animal appetite. It's, it's giving away something far more profound. Otherwise, it wouldn't have any of the devastating power it does. And you also know firsthand the goodness of God in giving this command to free us from ever having to experience that devastation. His desire is to free us from having to experience that. that that's why the command is so good and why God would put it in place. But as I said, generally speaking, people today, the majority of people would, would agree in the goodness of Jesus' command that he references here in verse 27, not to commit adultery. They'd agree with the, the goodness of it, even if they wouldn't necessarily agree as to why it's good. We might have differing views about that. But, but as we'll see in, in each of these examples from the law and the prophets that Jesus gives, where the problem arises is not with the goodness of the command, that, that everybody listening to Jesus' instruction here would have known and, and already been familiar with, but the problem is what, with what Jesus goes on to describe about the fullness of the command. The fullness of the command. So, so look with me now where all the trouble starts in verse 28 as Jesus completes his you have heard it was said formula. Now on the other side we're saying, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Listen, I know, I know, undeterred by their foiled attempts last week, our, our inner defense attorneys are once again ready to leap into action here at the apparent absurdity of Jesus' charge. We're just ready to be like, wait, wait, wait. But, but again, just pause, Ho hopefully in understanding what Jesus is actually trying to get at here, we, we help us also see the goodness in what he's showing us in this expanded, fuller understanding of the commandment not to commit adultery. And when we're trying to understand something that, that's difficult or that feels like too emotionally bound up in, in all kinds of different things, sometimes the best way to understand what someone is saying is, first of all, just crossing what, they're not, what that person is not saying off the list, just getting rid of some of the options that don't fit. And so let's just do that for a minute. Uh, two in particular, the first one being when it comes to Jesus' expanded teaching on uh, this commandment, first of all, no. Although, yes, Jesus uses an example of looking with lustful intent at a woman, this passage is not, as has far too commonly been presented in the past, about how men in particular have some problem with lust that women do not. I mean, when, when this passage came up on a Sunday morning, this was a bad Sunday for men. This was just a bad Sunday because it was presented this way. But men, you have this problem with lust, and women are just like, mm, I wish that you didn't. It was just, just a bad Sunday. And, and yet... We know that can't be the case because, first of all, women freely acknowledge their own struggles with lust. They're kind of like, uh-huh, actually me too, so I don't know why we're presenting this as just a man's problem. And secondly, when you know, just by reading the text carefully, Jesus does not say every man that looks with a woman on lustful intent. He says everyone. Everyone that looks on a woman with lustful intent is guilty of committing adultery in their heart. Okay, so, so clearly this is, Jesus is giving a representative example, but not a gender-specific reference. Second thing Jesus is not saying here is, no, this passage is not, as it is also far too often been presented in the past, describing a kind of repressed, prudish, Victorian attitude towards sex that the Bible is often unfairly characterized as teaching and requiring of all upstanding church-going people. 
Because it's presented this way, and this is why so many people look at the Bible and they're like, oh man, this is why I can't even with Christianity. It's just so repressive, so archaic and backwards. Like, look at it, so sex, you know, it's so bad. Looking at women is bad. Like, this is just why I just can't with Christianity. And yet, no, right? Like, what do we just look at? Two naked people in a garden being told to, like, give themselves repeatedly to one another. Make a whole lot of babies. The, 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 the kind of unbridled eroticism, a joy between a husband and wife that you see described in the Song of Solomon. That's the Bible's idea of sexual enjoyment and fulfillment. So, so anybody that, that would say that this passage or anything else is presenting this kind of repressed, prudish idea of sexuality in the Bible, they're, they're either uninformed, misinformed, or, or both. It's just, it's, just, it's just not what's being said here. But, okay, having said all that, we, we still need to do something with Jesus' fuller explanation of the command not to commit adultery we, that feels seemingly absurd and impossible. This, this charge that just to look on a woman or another person with lust makes us guilty, guilty of adultery as if we had physically carried out the act with them. We, we got we to gotta do something with this. And so what, well, what is Jesus saying here? What, what is he getting at? Well, just as we saw last week, that it's not anger in general that is equated with murder, but cherished, smoldering anger, so too here. It is not looking on another person and feeling sexual desire or attraction towards them in general that's equated with adultery. That's not what he's talking about. But the prolonged, lingering gaze that gives way to imagination and fantasy. Okay? That's what Jesus says is equivalent to adultery in our hearts. As commentator F.D. Bruner notes, in both cases, with anger and with lust, it is the will to continue the happening, to, to sustain the feeling that Jesus challenges. Because remember, sexual desire in and of itself isn't sinful. Any more than, than anger, feeling anger towards things like abuse and injustice is sinful. Those are both ways that God designed us to be, right? But again, what Jesus is getting at in this fuller explanation of this commandment is that obedience to the law is as much a matter of the heart as it is a matter of the hands. In fact, I would even go further than that and to say that what Jesus is demonstrating here and in each of these commandments is that obedience to the law is first a matter of the heart before it is ever a matter of the hands, which is why he, he deals with the heart motivation as well as just the external keeping of the law. So here, in the same way that speaking and acting towards someone as though I wished they were dead makes me guilty of breaking the sixth commandment not to murder even though I haven't physically killed them, to linger, to linger in sexual thought, fantasy about someone who is not my spouse makes me as guilty of breaking the second or the seventh commandment not to commit adultery before God as if I had physically had sexual encounter with them. That's, that's what it is. It's that cherished lingering thought that gives way to fantasy and imagination of those things. That's what makes me guilty in my heart, even as though I had carried out that physically. Which I know, listen, I'm with you. Once again, makes God's law sound impossibly unreasonable to us. And yet, when you think it through, actually, it probably is not, it probably is far more reasonable than we'd like to admit. And the reason I say that is because, just think about this, you'll need to imagine the reaction of a, of a spouse, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, to you coming to them one day and confessing repeated, 
lingering sexual fantasies that you've engaged in about another person and, and, and then telling them, oh, but don't worry because I haven't actually had sex with them. Can, can you even imagine anyone who's genuinely committed to you being okay with that? Just being like, oh, okay, but you didn't, you've just spent hours imagining sex with them, but you just, you haven't actually had sex with them? Okay, that's cool. No worries. I, I, know, I know I sure wouldn't be okay with that. But just listen, far beyond, just far beyond the, the well-documented detrimental psychological effects of something like pornography to individuals. And listen, the, the, these are secular scientific studies, that's not focused on the family, have shown again and again just the mind-changing, brain-path-altering effects of pornography on an individual. Far beyond any of that is one of the reasons pornography addiction has such a devastating effect on relationships. Because, listen, even if we don't have the language, even if we couldn't put our finger on exactly why it's so destructive, what we feel at a core level, at a heart level, and I'm saying we feel that way because this is the way God designed sex to be, what we feel at a core level is that they are still participating in a whole self-giving with another person when they engage in, in fantasy and masturbation to pornography, even if they've never laid a finger on that person. That's, that's what we feel, that they are absolutely still, there is an aspect of whole self-giving, even if they haven't engaged physically in those acts with that person. They're engaging with him in their heart. And so we still feel the, the abuse of that, the theft of that, when they carry out those actions through pornography. And so it's because of Jesus' desire that we would be free from those destructive effects, both individually as well as in our relationships, that he expands here on the fuller heart motivation behind the seventh commandment regarding adultery. To deal with our obedience to the law that he came to fulfill, not just outwardly, not just keeping ourselves from physically doing that, which again is also good, but also guarding ourselves and having freedom from that at a heart level, which is where obedience to the law actually truly begins. He desires our freedom in, in both of those places. And when we come to see that, when we come to see that, that freedom is what Jesus is actually getting at here in his teaching, rather than running from it, I believe we will instead embrace it and radically pursue, do whatever we can to, to enjoy the freedom that he wants, to, he wants us to have, that, he, that he's created for us and, and given us access to. Now that our obedience to the law is no longer about earning our righteousness before God, but on the basis of and in celebration of the fact that we have acceptance already with God through Jesus. And so that's what I want to look at. In conclusion, as we consider what Jesus says about radically pursuing the freedom of the command. Radically pursuing the freedom of the command. When you look at Jesus, uh, the, the way that Jesus instructs us as his kingdom citizens to deal with the destructive power of lust in our hearts in verse 29 and 30, yeah, it certainly is radical. It is absolutely extreme in nature. Look there, verse 29, Jesus says, yeah, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than the whole body be thrown to hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than the whole body be thrown into hell. So it's absolutely radical, right? It's absolutely extreme. But uh, Although, no, Jesus is not 
teaching literal self-mutilation as a means of deeper discipleship, okay? It's not what he's showing us here. You want to be really spiritual. You need to cut your leg. Like, that's not, that's not what he's doing here. And we know that because, as one commentator so simply pointed out, even blind or crippled, it is still entirely possible to lust. So even though he's not teaching self-mutilation as a means of discipleship, he is absolutely calling his kingdom citizens to deal with lust in their hearts with the seriousness with which it deserves. Absolutely, he's saying, saying lust is not something to be toyed with or, or, or managed, that we could just like keep it around but just kind of say, well, you need to stay in that corner and trust that it's actually going to stay there. No, he says what, what's needed is you need to get it out. It needs to be kicked out, cut off. What you need is immediate radical surgery in order to get rid of any trace of that in your life, says Jesus. And I know, I know that can sound as unreasonable as the charge that to look on a woman with lust makes us guilty of adultery in our hearts. We're, we're kind of like, Jesus, you know, shouldn't we take a more studied, kind of measured approach to, to just gradually weaning ourselves of this destructive power of lust over time? Like, like take some other measures first, try some other treatments first. I mean, isn't, isn't jumping to amputation a little bit extreme? To which Jesus, the great physician, replies, no, not if you see lust for what it truly is. It's not. As John Piper so powerfully illustrates, we are to deal with lust in our hearts in the same way that, that if, you, if you had a, a cherished brooch pinned on your coat, that, that if you were to look down and see that rather than a brooch, what you were actually holding and clinging to here was a live scorpion, the same way that you would be like, when you saw it for what it was, you would fling it away. Jesus says, when you, when you see lust for what it truly is, you need to deal radically, immediately, and decisively with it. Not keep it around, not wait and see. You need to deal with it immediately and decisively, which then begs the question, okay, will you trust Jesus' diagnosis of its seriousness? Will you trust that he, he does see it for what it truly is? Or, or will you instead, I don't know, wait around for a second or third opinion from some other sources? As though the one who created you, the one who sees, again, every part of you, even down to the dark parts of your hearts, as though he doesn't see as well as you or some others might? Because here's the thing, man, helpfully, I don't even, I don't even need to ask you whether or not you've ever experienced the powerful draw of lust before. I don't, I don't even need to ask, that's that's. All of our experience to one degree or another. Uh, instead, I can just simply ask you to consider the question, okay, when? When you, you, you last were in the grip of lustful desire, whenever that was, how easy was it for you to overcome when it came? How, how easy was it for you to overcome the powerful draw of lust after you'd lingered on that thought or on that scenario for even more than a minute, just given a little bit more space, a little bit more air to breathe, how easy was it then to get it out of the house, to make it leave? Was it as simple as just closing the laptop, just, just averting your eyes and looking the other way, just, just putting proper boundaries in place with that friendship? But was, was it as easy as that? Well, if it wasn't, <laughs> And my guess is that's the case for the majority of us once we've given room and space for, for lust to take root in our hearts. One of the reasons is because all those responses, all those responses, oh, just close the laptop, just look away, look a different direction, put proper boundaries in place. All those responses are, are logical, they're rational, but, but the power of lust, listen, is that it's not rational. 
It's not rational, but an emotional, physiological response to stimulus, ruled much more by the amygdala, the the emotion center of the brain, than by the prefrontal cortex, which which controls our, our rational thinking. I mean, they, they've seen this in scientific studies now. Strong emotion, like sexual desire, like anger, actually, the, the places in the brain that are there stimulated are, are the emotion centers of the brain, far more to the place that they can even override our rational brain, which isn't that just what we see again and again in those situations of strong, passionate emotion. It just seems to override rational thought. The point Jesus is making here is by the time lust has taken hold of you, All of those good, nice, rational solutions become almost irrelevant. They become less and less helpful. And so in one sense, although his examples of eye gouging and hand severing yeah, are are, are exaggerated to help really stress the importance of, of taking lust seriously, Jesus' counsel is to take rational measures. If you think about those, even though they're extreme examples, they really are rational measures to deal with lust. If you know this is the place you struggle... Deal with it rational. The point is, Jesus' counsel is to take rational measures before we're in the grip of lust, and those rational measures are no longer helpful. Take rational, thoughtful, intentional measures to deal with lust before you're in the midst of temptation to help protect yourself, because once you're in the midst of its grip, rational measures are no longer helpful. But of course, beyond being an emotional response alone, lust is also a spiritual appetite that, that, that grips us at a soul level, doesn't it? The, the 13th century poet and philosopher Dante Alighieri said it this way, the passion of lust, like gluttony, makes reason a slave to appetite. And man, look at that. Even back in the 13th century, he's already looking ahead to something which we would discover later in neuroscience about the way that our emotional brain uh, makes a slave of our rational brain. Uh, absolutely, he's seeing that. But what he says there, it's, it's both beautifully said, but also incredibly insightful And in that, as Tim Keller notes in his work on this passage, the word Jesus uses here for lust, epithemeo, is a word that's strongly connected to the idolatry produced by greed. All of a sudden, and then, so, okay, so think about <clears throat> the, the way that idols are formed by by a passionate longing for something, a need for something that's so strong that we take it, even good things, and make them ultimate things in our lives. It's the exact connected kind of word that Jesus uses for lust here. And so, okay, all of a sudden, yeah, when you think of lust in the context of something like greed, all of a sudden you get this much clearer image of an insatiable, selfish desire that is just seeking more and more and that will do anything it can to get it, which I think just describes lust perfectly as it too is is selfish it, it's almost entirely just about self-gratification in that and that, that it seeks sexual intimacy and fulfillment outside of and, and and without relationship or commitment and it's also irrational it's irrational in that just it never knows when to stop eating But I know, listen, I, I know full well that when it comes to radically pursuing the freedom that Jesus intends as it relates to lust, I know this is going to look entirely different for each and every one of us. It's not going to look the same. It'll look different for every single one of us. But as you think about your own life this morning, and this is the time, particularly right now, I just want to ask you just to push aside any thoughts of like anybody else you might be thinking of, oh, I sure hope they're listening to this. I'm asking you to think about you right now as you think about your own life this morning, the places 
the people, the things that, where you know you are most vulnerable to the grip of lust. What radical, as well as, yeah, rational measures is Jesus calling you to take today, preemptively, before the temptation comes, in order to deal with the destructive power of lust as a kingdom citizen? What radical, rational measures is Jesus calling you to take? And, and listen, I'm asking you to really just stop and think about this. If you need to pause the video, whatever, do that. Really think about, okay, me and my own life, where am I most vulnerable? Where do I see myself consistently failing in this area? Really think about what those things are. And then say, what measures do I need to put in place to, to protect myself from the, the powerful draw in those places? Maybe it's limiting your access to the internet from now on. Maybe it's li- li- deciding when and where you will or will not use the internet in order to give yourself greater accountability. I'm only going to use internet when I'm in a room with other people, like whatever it is. Maybe it's uh, a cutting off a valued friendship, but that you know you've just proven again and again you're unable to set proper boundaries around. Maybe it's as simple as taking a different route to work or to class, even though it takes you that much longer to get there. In order to avoid temptations that you know in the moment, override your rational safeguards. What is it? In fact, you know what? If you think about this call of Jesus in the context of Hebrews 12, that, that talks about laying aside every weight, as well as the sin that encumbers our running the race marked out with freedom. This, this might even mean cutting off or giving up otherwise good or neutral things in order to know the freedom Jesus is calling us into. Because think about it, an eye, like that, there's nothing sinful about an eye, right? There's nothing sinful about your hand. Those are good things. But if they are causing you to sin, it's about taking radical measures to get rid of whatever it is that is causing you to sin, that is causing you to fall into lust in this way. Whatever it is, says Jesus, Whatever it takes, no matter how radical, no matter how extreme, to fight against giving lust, do whatever it takes to fight against giving lust, even the smallest foothold in your life, says Jesus. Do whatever it takes. Not not because I want to restrict your freedom, says Jesus. That's not why I'm saying this. But because the reality is the freedom you think you have by giving into lust in all these different ways, it's actually imprisoning you. Yeah, you're actually imprisoned by those things. And I came to give you freedom from that prison. I came to free you from those chains. I came to, to, as well as to free you from the impossible demands of the law and the prophets that judge not only your external actions, but also the desires of your heart. I came to give you freedom from all those things. So do whatever it takes, whatever radical measures to walk into that freedom I've provided for you, which, listen, hear me, I know, I know, is not at all about, like, I'm not suggesting in a, for a second that those things are easy, that doing that is going to be easy for you. It, it won't be. Absolutely it won't be. You're going to need help. You're going to need other brothers and sisters alongside you. You're going to need prayer. You're going to need the armor of God. You're going to need all these things in order to do that. It won't be easy. Any, any more than gouging out an eye or severing a hand is easy. That, those are costly, painful sacrifices that Jesus is representing there. But here's what I know. I know that it is absolutely possible to do. By God's grace, this is absolutely possible, and it's actually worth. It's worth anything God might call you or I to sacrifice in order to get it. It's something, when when we see it for, for the good that it truly is, you will run towards and not away from. 
And you can do it. For in coming to earth, taking on human flesh, walking perfectly according to the law of God, and then suffering the full weight of God's judgment on the cross to fulfill all the fulfill the law and the prophets on our behalf, Jesus made the most extreme radical sacrifice for you and for me of all. Not simply sacrificing an eye or a hand, but his very life. Also that we might know freedom from the impossible demands of the law, and so that we might walk into the fullness of his good design for us. As we walk in obedience now, not merely with our hands and our external behavior, but also at the heart level where obedience truly begins. That's the fullness of what he's called us to walk into. And it's so so good. Oh, God, help us to do this. We'll never do it without your help and without the help of each other. Amen. Amen.